This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. The CDC would like to know what you're flushing down the toilets. The agency expanding programs so scientists can study wastewater, which may hold the key to learning more about COVID spread where you are. And the future of COVID prevention through the vaccines might not involve needles, but a nasal spray. We start with expanded wastewater surveillance programs. Scientists in California and around the country have been studying sewage to figure out when surges are hitting and declining, as well as checking for emerging variants. With us is Edwin O, professor in UNLV's School of Medicine. He's developed new approaches to study wastewater for COVID and the flu. So how does looking at sewage help us learn more about viral outbreaks? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate the coverage. There, there are really two key uh, pieces of uh, intelligence here that you can get with monitoring sewage. One is viral counts. You can, you can look at viral levels at various zip codes, communities, and be able to predict, or at the very worst, mirror um, human infection levels. So sometimes you might have a seven-day or 14-day window to... Um, in anticipation of a potential surge. And so that's, that's one level. The other level is variants. Uh, we can use sewage to be able to determine when a variant starts to emerge in a community. This was something that we found with Omicron for Las Vegas uh, before our very first uh, human infection a week later. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable, uh, the amount of information you can get from sewage. And, and part of the reason that we can get this type of intelligence is you and I, we, we contribute uh, fecal matter to sewage. So anything that we find in that sewage is representative of a human community. Go team. We're all in this together. Um, <laughs> do you think people, I mean, there are always stories about it and, and all through the pandemic, there are always people researching it and, you know, you were one of them. But do you think people actually caught up to this idea through this last wave? Because I remember a whole bunch of tweets from like back east, right? New York and Boston. And they were saying, especially when Omicron was starting the decline, they were saying, you know what? We've seen the decline in the sewage levels, it's going to happen. And sure enough, week, week and a half later, there it was. Yeah, really, over the last year, we've just seen how sewage could predict the rise and fall of, uh, of the surge of infection levels from anything from alpha to lambda to delta and now for Omicron. And, and obviously, our, our, our sites are set on BA.2 or the stealth Omicron right now, which, uh, which is slowly emerging across the country. Are you starting to see or others starting to see anything new or potentially disturbing developing? Yeah, a number of labs across the country have started to see these very rare uh, mutations in SARS-CoV-2 in sewage. And we're not sure if this is coming from one or two immune compromised humans or whether this is coming from our uh, feral uh, animal population that's, that's potentially contributing uh, waste to stormwater. Um, in addition, uh, pets um, can also contribute uh, fecal matter that might be flushed down our typical sewage lines. So there are a number of different variables that we're all, we're all looking at to, to, to figure out where some of these rare mutations might be coming from in sewage. So obviously watching for new variants and tracking this is, is a big thing, but how in practice would this help us 
later on down the line. I mean, if we get something else or we're starting to watch maybe next winter or whatever it is, I mean, we can track cities and that's the obvious one. But how dialed in can you get? Can you go to certain communities and say, let's put up a pop-up testing site there because we've had a spike in, in this area in what we're seeing? Yes and no. It's it's one of the beauties of um, and, and disadvantages of wastewater sampling. Um, one of the beauties of wastewater sampling is we can one of the beauties and disadvantage is that we cannot pinpoint a single human being. So using this surveillance, we cannot say that um, a person at address X, zip code Y, uh, has this variant. Go to that location and find that person. Wastewater surveillance cannot do that, which is really the beauty of the system. The system allows us to look at large communities and it allows us to deploy public health resources to a general community in anticipation of a rare variant that might be growing over time or uh, viral levels that might be growing over time. So if we see a rare mutation, we're not necessarily going to react or act uh, immediately. We're gonna be monitoring it to see whether that those levels increase over time. And if they increase over time, then um, it's likely that we're having uh, community transmission of were, this mutation. Were these systems uh, in place before the pandemic or are these all installed afterwards? Yeah, so so really, um, th this is a system that's been around for some time for polio, for hepatitis A. We've been able to really only look at um, a binary outcome. Is it there? Is it not there? But with COVID, we, we've gone one step further. We've been able to look at sewage and be able to use the same technology that we use for nasal pharyngeal swabs on sewage. And that is to sequence entire genomes uh, to look for mutations of interest. Edwin O, professor in UNLV's School of Medicine. COVID-19 vaccine that could ultimately turn a pandemic into an endemic might not come at the point of a needle. Instead, it could be a nasal spray. Scientists are hoping a cheap and widely available nasal vaccine could be the ultimate difference maker in slowing down COVID-19 and ending the pandemic. Dr. Peter Polisi is chair of the Department of Microbiology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's helped develop a nasal COVID vaccine. And Dr. Michal Tal is an immunologist at Stanford who has studied nasal vaccines. Uh, Dr. Polisi, let's start with you. Aside from the ease of use of a nasal spray, what are the other advantages of a vaccine in the nose? Okay, let me start out and say that the traditional COVID-19 vaccines are fantastic. And these are the messenger RNA vaccines by Moderna and Pfizer. These are really great vaccines. And I think we should be all very, very thankful that these vaccines exist. And please vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Having said that, however, there is uh, some space for some better vaccines. We all learn that uh, these variants, such as the Omicron, break through. And we would like to have vaccines which also uh, prevent this breakthrough, uh, which we are observing in the last several weeks. And those would be in contrast to the mRNA vaccines, which are injected, they are sprayed into the nose. And uh, these uh, nasal vaccines actually induce an immune response in the respiratory tract. And that is important because the COVID-19 virus, SARS coronavirus 2, is actually transmitted through the respiratory tract. We all know that they, they are aerosol driven and by 
inducing an immunity in the respiratory tract by having nasal vaccine, which has, can be sprayed into the nose, we should be able to make vaccines which prevent the uh, transmission from one person to the other. Okay, so Dr. Tall, am I correct then that the, the proper way that this would be used, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is one would still be vaccinated with a, and for the moment we'll call it a traditional vaccine shot in the arm, to build up systemic immunity to prevent you from serious illness, but you would supplement that, would you, with a nasal vaccine to prevent infection? Is that is that that's, pretty much it? That's exactly right. It would be like a different kind of booster, um, but instead of following up with a booster in the arm, this would be following up with a booster that's, that's like a spritz into the nose. But um, one of the big reasons, the big incentives to do that in this context right now is that there's a lot of people who've already been vaccinated and have made really good responses that will protect them from severe disease and hospitalization. And what we're really trying to get is to get them over to also having nice protection at the entrances to their body. Um, so, you know, along all of those, you know, what we call mucosa in the, in the nose and the mouth, um, so that where the virus is coming in, they've got protection there ready to go. If we're using it as a booster, theoretically, would that also speed up the process for testing it and getting it approved and all that? Because if we went just the straight, it's a new thing route, we know that can take time. Well, it's still it's still going to take it's still going to need you know those same kinds of trials to test if it's working. But the good thing is that if we're testing this to try to prevent transmission, that's a little bit uh, quicker of an endpoint to when we have that data than trying to see you know does this reduce death or hospitalization, um, which is it's slightly longer from when you're infected to when you, you know, have right. those severe outcomes than just if I was exposed, did I get infected? Dr. Polisi, uh, there is a nasal vaccine for influenza, but it never really took off, uh, at least in, in this country. Why would one think that one uh, nasal spray vaccine for uh, Omicron or for the coronavirus would be more uh, you know, acceptable or accepted. Yeah, as you mentioned, as you said, the uh, live virus vaccine for against influenza is a nasal vaccine, and it is very good for younger uh, people, children particularly. And uh, this is not directly comparable and transferable to uh, COVID nineteen because it's really apples and oranges. These different vaccines. So I'm hopeful that a, a nasal vaccine for COVID-19 may actually uh, be better than it is for flu, which is not uh, a general vaccine for all age groups, but mostly for children. For COVID-19, I hope that it would be uh, more um, appropriate for everyone and, uh, and as Dr. Tall said, uh, prevents transmission and prevents infection. Dr. Peter Polisi, Chair of the Department of Microbiology, Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai. Dr. Michal Tal, immunologist at Stanford. We end uh, today's Coronavirus Daily with a warning. 
don't trust Bambi. Well, not Bambi exactly, but his cute deer cousins that could be traipsing through your backyard. Scientists have been tracing various coronavirus outbreaks among deer populations across the country. During one COVID surge in late 2020 among free-range deer in Iowa, researchers found a shocking 60% of deer tested had contracted COVID. Could be benign in the short term. A deer infected with the virus displays a few symptoms. Outbreaks are hard to detect, even harder to contain. But here's the worrying part of some 30 million white-tailed deer roaming across the U.S. They could be reservoirs for the virus, allowing it to mutate and then produce new variants. And we don't know yet if a deer can pass the virus back to us. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.